Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to the director of the new Wham! documentary on Netflix, Chris Smith. We review the week's new releases, including Pixar's new movie, Elemental. Plus, actor Rory Nolan chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Hope you had a good week and you're having a good day, wherever and however you are listening. Now, a lot of people got in touch with me. Well, a few people. Don't overstate it. Saying that they went to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and largely enjoyed it. Uh, most of the people who got in touch with me said they really enjoyed it. And it was somewhat reminiscent of Indiana Jones of old, you know. Uh, so I, if you heard last week's show, you know, we gave it a pretty warm review. In fact, I said it was kind of delightful on the hard shoulder because they're using that on a poster. You know you're really important when they're using your words on a poster. Kind of delightful. But Indiana Jones is kind of delightful. So I will continue to recommend Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, in TV this week, I was watching something very different. You turned O.J. Simpson into a civil rights cause. You would all regret that? Absolutely not. O.J. Simpson was a vessel. He was merely a tool that allowed something to come out and be exposed. So you were using O.J. Simpson for your own cause? I was using O.J. Simpson for our cause, for black people's cause. Now, as you might glean from that, that is a clip from O.J. Made in America, which was out nearly six years ago at this stage, and it won the documentary at the Oscars for Best Documentary, and they had to actually change it. The, the the way documentaries were judged, that it couldn't be a long-form kind of TV one. This is a documentary, obviously, all about O.J. Simpson. It runs to eight hours, or just over eight hours. As I say, it was out six years ago. And I watched it, or re-watched a lot of it this week, because I was talking to Ivan Yates, who was in for Pat Kenny, about uh, a good TV show to watch on our series, Boxed. And I wanted to do something that I thought Ivan might be into. And I'd kind of forgotten about this a bit. And I think OJ Made in America, it's a bold statement, certainly one of the greatest documentaries ever made uh, and certainly one of the best of recent years, if not the best. Because I remember sitting down to watch it for the first time and thinking, I know this story. I'm not going to watch eight hours of this. Plus, it wasn't that long before that that a lot of us had watched The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which was this fictionalised version of the trial, which was very good. But what they do in O.J. Made in America, which is on Disney+, Plus, by the way, it was originally on ESPN, the sports channel in America, but it is now on Disney+, Plus. all, all five parts of it. But this is an examination of obviously the life and times of OJ, but of race in America, of celebrity, of spousal abuse, of all sorts of things. And the way this show is edited is a masterclass in how you make a documentary. And it in no way is excusing OJ or anything like that, because 
you know, it, 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 it might sound, if it's a study of race, that it's somehow saying this is what gave rise to him. But it is painting a picture of modern America, or certainly America in the 90s, and why the OJ story might have unfolded as it did. And it doesn't, you know, begin with here's his childhood and, and move in that linear way. It moves all around the place. And it shows you what brought OJ to where he was. And it also shows you the factors at play during his trial. And there are moments in this documentary in every episode that are quietly terrifying about the type of person OJ was, but also about things that happened in the trial and things that we've realised retrospectively. It's directed by a guy called Ezra Edelman, who I said won an Oscar for it. And it is powerful documentary making it really is I had cause to rewatch it again it's grim but it's fascinating it really is so I would watch it again and I've now watched it twice at this stage and that's eight hours and I've plenty of things to be doing but it is that good so that is OJ Made in America available to stream on Disney Plus and I am highly highly recommending it. Let me know if you might have seen it or indeed what else you might be watching. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now, something very different is this. Let's introduce the band. George. I'm Andrew. We had a number one album. We had a string of hit singles and we were selling out arenas. How can the country be in love with these two idiots? We met when I was 11 and Andrew was 12. And there was only ever one thing that I wanted to do. Yes, yes. Be in a band with George. Andrew changed my life in exactly the way someone needed to change my life if I was going to be a pop star. And that was it. Wham! Yes, now that is the unmistakable sound of wham. And you heard George Michael in there as well and a bit of Andrew Ridgely as well. The unmistakable sound of George Michael. And wham, you've probably heard about this. It's a documentary that landed on Netflix on Wednesday, simply called Wham. And it is a straight ahead, glorious and somewhat delightful, there I said delightful again, telling of the story of Wham, which, you know, I I think we all remember, or lots of people remember, maybe for younger listeners they don't, but Wham were this boy band of comprising of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely, and they became huge. And what this documentary does is show how they came together, their roots, because they actually began as kind of a more serious band, but then they decided to embrace kind of being two young, fun-loving chaps. And it charts their rise from obscurity to literally headlining a farewell gig in Wembley Stadium, like 80,000 plus people. Incredible stuff. It also has a lot about George Michael's struggle in there because he was gay and trying to come out and knowing at that time he felt he couldn't and how he kind of sublimated that into the band and that he had to make Wham! a success. There was amazing footage in this I'd never seen before. Stuff like George Michael receiving an Ivor Novella Award. What's also beautiful in it is you realise just how fundamentally close Andrew Ridgely and George Michael were and how it so easily couldn't have happened because they met literally 
by chance one day in school. It is directed by a man called Chris Smith, who is a great documentary maker. He gave us that documentary all about the Fry Festival a couple of years ago. He also gave us a brilliant documentary called Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, all about Jim Carrey when he played Andy Kaufman in The Man in the Moon, a really fascinating piece of work that he's done, The Disappearance of Madeleine McCann. He is a brilliant documentary maker. So I was surprised when I heard that it was him who was going to do a documentary about Wham, but he did it very well. And I had a long chat with him earlier in the week. Chris, I mentioned to you just before we came on air, I'm a big admirer and I've I've watched a lot of what you've done over the years. So I thought it was kind of incongruous that maybe you were doing a Wham documentary. Uh, now, maybe I'm wrong and I'm a big George Michael fan, but why did you decide to go here? Yeah, well, somebody, you know, for me, it's always instinctual of just, if it's something that is interesting to me or I'm curious about something, I feel like that that's really the only thing that I go by. So it wasn't, there's not like a huge calculation. It's really like, am I interested to know more? And if I am, then I hope other people might be. So I think that's where it started. And then kind of quickly looking into it further, I realized there was an amazing story there that I wasn't aware of. So I think the combination of, you know, an initial instinctual thing followed up by like that there was a great story where you know made it a very easy decision yeah and you mentioned that great story and you know i've heard so many differing accounts of george michael's private life and his life and the wham days and there was you know there was talk of times that uh george and andrew were in a sexual relationship together there was talk at times that you know there was a lot of infighting and stuff like that. But what comes across on your documentary is that they were possibly the most important person in each other's life for a very long time, and possibly even up until George's death. Was that another motivation to you? Or was that a surprise to you, just how tight these guys were? Yeah, I think, you know, I didn't know much about Wham. I was aware of Wham, which I think a lot of people were, the music and the videos and sort of the way they presented themselves. But I didn't know, I didn't know anything about their relationship. And so that was new to me. And it was one of the things that was most appealing because it was, I don't know, it it seems rare to sort of come across these story, a story like this. Yeah. What, what also was surprising to me was because I, I think I'm a similar age to you and I came of age in the eighties and wham were a big deal, but maybe, you know, I was too busy trying to be into Bruce Springsteen or something to pay them that much attention when I was 10 or 11, but they kind of began as a, you know, they were talking about social issues and, and young men and the city streets. And then they kind of morphed into being a good time band, as George later says, a good time band on the run in the song Freedom. Was that a surprise to you that their roots were kind of grittier than people might have expected? Yeah, I think, you know, I think what was interesting was to see, you know, all the way back to their first band that they did, the executive. Yeah. It was like a ska band. And then they went <laughs> kind of morphed into you know, a reflection of, of what was happening in music um, with Wham Rap. But, it, 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 you know, I think they quickly realized that that world, there was only so far they could go with that and that their lives were changing and that they had to adapt accordingly. And I, I, you know, I thought it was really a testament to how um, 
accomplished they were in the sense that they realized that that was pretty much a dead end road pretty quickly. Yeah. And that they were going to sort of forge a new path. And, and you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that always is most inspiring or exciting to me is to find artists that have created something that didn't exist before. And I feel like what Wham, the aesthetic and the music, like there really isn't anything that I would compare it to. And I think that that's like very, very hard to achieve. I don't want to get under the bonnet or get any of your trade secrets. <laughs> you make these documentaries. But I'm wondering if you can tell me, where did you get all the George Michael voice or him talking so much? Because it literally sounded like you were interviewing him. Was was that, did you have to go deep for that? Was it in the public domain? Or maybe you can't say. So you can no. give me a brief an answer if you want. Yeah, no, no. We, in making a project like this, you try to collect everything that exists. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, you know, Simon was friends with George and Andrew and um, one of our producers. So, you know, the George Michael estate was incredibly helpful in giving us everything they had. Andrew, um, you know, and his family gave us what they had. Um, then you're going to basically you just start networking to find as many things as you can and try to use that to, to put piece together to create some, you know, a, a version of something that you hope transports people back to that time and place. One of the glorious scenes in it, and I hope it's not a spoiler, but you, you get footage of him receiving an Ivor Novella Award. And it's it's spine tingling uh, how he how, how just overwrought he was with that. And it, it really choked him up that he was getting the, you know, approbation of his peers like Elton John and Sting and stuff like that. Was that hard to find? Because I'd never seen that before. Yeah, everything, it was all in different, there was so much of it was scattered in different places. You know, the footage from Club Fantastic, we had heard that that had been shot, but nobody had a record of it. No, a tape didn't exist. And it was only like, I think a couple weeks before we finished it, somebody was at a lunch with somebody else and talking about that. And they were like, oh, I have a copy. And so it was like, it was really, I think that, you know, you would assume that this stuff is um, all exists and is like meticulously archived, but it, it, it isn't. It was yeah. sort of like it spread throughout. I mean, you know, there definitely is a large chunk of it was, but there was definitely these like little um, amazing uh, treasures that were yet to be discovered and sort of collected. Yeah. Now, I, this is a film show you're, you're talking to me on a TV and film show. So forgive me if this is too tabloidy a question, but I was under the impression that George and Andrew had had some kind of romantic relationship. I'm nearly sure I've seen that in a documentary I saw about the making of Last Christmas. And yet there seems to have been that wasn't the case. Is that the case or have you just left that this vague is, or is it none of our business? This is the first time I've heard it. To be honest, okay. I'm not, okay. So I don't know. I honestly like I've been never. Is it literally the first time I've heard it? So I don't. I don't have any comment because it wasn't something that we found in the work in sort of going through the materials that we went through. Okay. Well, that's a that's a that's a full stop to that one. So fair play. Tell me this. I was. I'm wondering. Are you tempted to make? And a, a documentary now about George Michael because, and this isn't a spoiler, but it. 
you know, Wham's career, it's in the public domain, kind of came to an end when they did the final show in right. Wembley. And, and Andrew kind of says it. He is now fully George Michael. It's like Luke Skywalker has killed Darth Vader and he is the, like the last scenes of him on the stage in Wembley, he is the George Michael of faith and father figure and all that stuff. And it seems to me it's crying out for you to now go on to the next stage of George's life. Are you tempted to do that? Look, if, if they asked me, I would gladly work on it. Um, you know, it hasn't come up yet, but, you know, I, I, I loved spending time with George and Andrew on Wham, huge fan of George's. So, like, mm. if, it, if it were to ever present itself, I would love to do it. But, uh, you know, it's not something I'm necessarily seeking out. Yeah. And then just with George's dad, it's interesting because there's footage of him in it. And as George is talking about the difficulty he had, coming out to his father there is footage and, and he was he was a Cip, greek cypriot and there is footage of his dad in it being incredibly proud of him it seems and saying i got it wrong this guy was right to follow this musical beat that he had or the music he heard in his head uh like how as a filmmaker how do you see their relationship, because I, I got the impression when I first started watching the movie, it was a classic dominating male with a sensitive son, but it, it seemed to morph into something different. Well, I don't think you could fault any parent for telling their children that it's probably unrealistic they're going to become a you know a global pop star. Like, I, I think the, <laughs> Fair I think enough. As, you, as you get older, you, you realize that the odds are, are against something like that. Yeah. So I, I think you're probably just trying to be practical and trying to help your kid not get hurt and protect them and, and allow them to be successful to some degree later in life. And so I, I, I would never like fault George's dad for not encouraging that. But, I, but at the same time, I think that, you know, one of the th positives is that, you know, well, maybe your kid could be the next George Michael. Yeah. yeah. So like, I think it's, it, it's, I thought it was very nice because, you know, he definitely, it definitely goes full circle in the movie in a way that I think is very um, heartwarming. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that maybe that's the takeaway is that, you know, yes, maybe the odds aren't, aren't in your favor, but maybe it's worth letting people pursue their dreams because you never know. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a lovely sentiment. Can I just ask you, as I have you in front of me, uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, what I marveled at that documentary is how you got Jim Carrey to be so honest about that time in his life. Uh, because he comes across and he admits that he wasn't the nicest person on the set of that movie. Yeah. And it's rare in Hollywood to be so candid about the mistakes you made. And this is a couple of years ago. It was a slightly different time, even though it's not that long ago. Did it take much convincing? And um, were you, as the filmmaker, surprised by how candid he was in the end? Well, with that film, you know, we were trying to sit down with Jim, I think for a long time. And I remember getting a phone call in December and said, Jim can meet, january 7th and it was like that was it it was like it'd been months and months and i think he'd been in hawaii for quite some time sort of on his own out there and when he came back i, I just think he had a lot on his mind yeah he was in a really good place like to 
communicate his thoughts. And it wasn't just about that experience, but just sort of the the whole idea of who is Jim Carrey, you know, and, and, yeah. and it, that we just became the beneficiary of that in the sense that, you know, it was the right place at the right time. Okay. And, and it, you know, everything lined up. So I was just happy to be there with a the camera. Yeah. And just on that, like I spoke to the director of Some Kind of Monster by Metallica not so long ago, and he was saying to me that it had a lot to do with being in the right place at the wrong at the right time. I was brought in to do something else, and then it just turned on a sixpence into Metallica having group therapy on screen for me. Is that, you know, you're obviously very successful, but does luck play a hand when you have a successful? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, time and time again, yeah, I mean, just going back to the Jim Carrey thing, the fact that we did the interview when we did the interview in the headspace that he was in allowed that movie to be more than just a retelling of um, this experience. So, yeah, you know, and, and similar to this, I don't know if you made the Wham movie 10 years ago, it would have been the same as yeah. it is today, you know, I yeah. think. But things I also think happen for a reason, and I feel like we're, you know, if you just stay open to the universe in that way, that you can hopefully get a little bit of, you know, luck in that way. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I'm thinking of another really sweet moment in the movie where George and Andrew meet in school for the first day and it's because Andrew stands up and says, I'll sit with him. And yeah. had, and George says, had that not have happened, you know, and it's like Bernie and Elton, apparently. They just threw Bernie's lyrics at Elton one day and they could have picked any envelope. So so I, I completely agree with you. Just in closing, because we're out of time and maybe you can't tell, but I think it's obvious in the last 12 minutes, I'm a fan of the stuff you've done. And I've asked if you're going to do another George documentary, but can you tell me what you're getting your teeth into next? Because they're always fascinating. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, um, I'm always busy. Um, what are we doing? We have a, we've been filming a, a third season. We do a TV show called A Hundred Foot Wave. Yeah. Um, and I think that just came out on Sky here. Um, the second season, we're just sort of working on a third right now. Okay. Okay. Thanks a million for talking to me, Chris. Thank you so much. Documentary maker there, Chris Smith, talking to me about his new Wham! documentary, simply called Wham!, which is now on Netflix. And it is well worth a watch because it is a joyous, sometimes sad story of who Wham! were and a bit of about who George Michael and indeed Andrew Ridgely is, because Andrew Ridgely is very much alive. Unfortunately, as we know, George isn't. But this is a fitting testament to who Wham! were. Up next... Pixar returns with Elemental. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn now to the week's new movie releases. And the biggest one is something lots of people look forward to, maybe less so as the years have gone on. And I'm talking about a new Pixar movie. This time it's a movie called Elemental, which I haven't seen, but I gather is about fire and water joining together or something like that. Thankfully, Brian Lloyd, movies editor at entertainment.ie, who is making his maiden voyage after four young years on screen time, has seen Elemental and he joins me now. Brian, hello. Hello, how are you? 
Very well. So listen, Elemental, I, I, I may have messed it up there slightly, but it is about the four prime elements of air, water, fire, and uh, whatever the other one is, right? <laughs> yeah, it's wind. Uh, so wind. It's wind. It's wind, water, fire, and earth. Yeah, those are the four elements. I mean, yeah. I could be really pretentious and tell you that goes back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, but that'd be far too pretentious, so I won't. So I mean, listen, my own my own kind of uh, reckoning with um, the four elements comes from Captain Planet and the Planeteers. So that's <laughs> that's the this is the this is the education gap we're dealing with here on this. So, <laughs> so uh, this is I mean essentially what's going on here is it's it's basically like guess who's coming to dinner but with the four elements at play. So uh, Ember who's voiced by Leah Lewis um tends to her family's store in Element City, which by the way is where most of this uh, thing is set. The hope is, is that one day she'll be able to control her fiery temper and eventually take over the store. Um, she has an outburst uh, one day, which causes her to basically blow up in a fireball. It then wrecks a part of the store and the city inspector, voiced by Mamadou Ati, people would know him from uh, the most recent thing I think he was in was Jurassic World Dominion. Um, he was also in a Netflix show called Archive 87, I think it was called. It was this really kind of really dark um, sci-fi horror show that only got one season, but was very, very good. Um, so, yeah, he plays a city inspector, um, arrives at their store, and then they basically form a sort of unlikely connection that, you know, plays with the fact that he's made of water, she's made of fire. The two of them never should meet. But the connection with them then kind of begins to change their lives. She then discovers that she has a talent for glass blowing. Um, his family, if you like, um, are quite, I mean, they're essentially kind of like whatever the water equivalent is of sort of moneyed aristocratic waspy types. Okay. And she's brought into his world. He's brought into, into her world. And it's a kind of a whole melting pot kind of romance, if you like. Kind of like The Big Sick as well would be another film I think would, would, would take inspiration from. But these characters, the, the ember, the fire, the water, they're hmm. not people. They're kind of personified elements. Is that it? Well, no, they're people. Yeah, they're people. They're just made of fire and they're made of okay. water. And like, you know, there's um, the main uh, Mamadou Ati's character, Wade, for example, Um his wife, or sorry, his not his wife, his boss is a cloud called um, Gloria, I think is her name or something like that. So mm. it's all just like, yeah, it's just they're made of fire and they're made of water in the same way that Inside Out, you know, was yeah. personification of sadness, personification of joy, personification of anger, you know, that kind of mm. thing. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of a trope of, of Pixar movies over the years, it's fair to say. And is there, from what I've read about it, and it seems very apparent from what you're saying, there's a, an allegory here about race or something like that, or people from different walks of life? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially just like an immigrant love story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the idea of how do you honour the sacrifices that your parents have made and then how do you kind of honor your own wishes and your own desires? How do you integrate into a new society and not lose a part of you that came from another place? How do you, I suppose, you know, that kind of tension. They talk about it in the film that uh, Element City is not set up for fire people because, you know, there's water everywhere. There is... Uh, 
you know, flammable parts of the city, like, you know, the, the earth, uh, all the earth people that are walking around are, you know, made of wood and all the rest of it. And of course, fire is flammable and whatnot. Mm. So it does kind of talk about that, but it's, the metaphor is very, very heavy handed. Do you know that? Yeah, it, it sounds very, that way. It yeah. is. Yeah. But I mean, you kind of let that go in a way because it's a Pixar film. So you're kind of, this is, it's meant to be heavy handed so that, you know, younger audiences will see the straightforwardness of how, you know, racial, they will see racial discrimination in very, very stark terms. And Mm. it is completely illogical and has no basis in any kind of moral society, you know? Yeah. Um, this, sorry to cut across you, but yeah. you say heavy-handed because, like, you mentioned Up, and I'm thinking also, or sorry, you mentioned Inside Out, but I'm yeah. also thinking of Up, and I'm thinking of Soul and Turning Red. There are often, maybe not so much in Up, that was just straight ahead heartbreaking, but in these mm-hmm. Pixar movies, there are often these metaphors for kids and all, but but a movie like Inside Out is was breathtaking. It was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. I loved Soul as well, I have to mm. say. Not everyone was a massive fan. I thought Turning Red was very successful. So is this another successful Pixar movie? It is and it isn't. I mean, what I would say, and I, and I, I know that's kind of a, a, a cop-out answer. I'll explain that. I think that they set out to do what they what they intended to do, which was to tell was to bring the kind of the Pixar visual sense to bear on an immigrant love story. And they've mm-hmm. done that very, very well. An immigrant rom-com in the vein of The Big Sick. Um, or, you know, Mississippi Masala, if you want to get even further into the weeds on it. <laughs> um, but was it successful? No. From all accounts in the US, I think the response was quite tepid. Um, and there is a degree of... And again, I don't... I mean. No, like the director of this, Pete Son, um, he, you know, grew up in the Bronx Mm -hmm. and his parents are from Korea. So you can clearly see that there is an emotional heft to this. You know, it's not done with a sense of tokenism. It's not done in a sort of box ticking kind of scenario. But I do feel there are certain parts of this that it's kind of like it's been done before and it's been done better and it's been done more subtly and perhaps Mm -hmm. maybe trying to make this appeal to all possible audiences is in, you know, young kids and Mm. their parents that are bringing them Mm -hmm. by trying to appeal to all audiences. You lose a certain sharpness, you lose a little bit of insight and you lose a bit of subtlety. And I think with a story as complex as this, it requires subtlety. It requires insight, you know, like something like soul, for example, it's a kind of a nebulous topic, you know, that kind of way it's about, you know, what does it mean to have uh, an interest in your life that is fulfilling, but also is detrimental to your life. So, you know, you can look at it and take it on a surface level, or you can read beneath it and see the subtext with something like elemental. There is, you know, there is no real kind of subtext to it. It's very much straightforward. It's very Mm -hmm. heavy handed. And, it does, like I said, it does lose a certain amount of its insight. But in saying that, I mean, it's very well executed. Mamadou Athi, very, very good. Leah Lewis, yeah. very, very good. It, it, the story is told well. It's just a little bit heavy-handed. And I think it's okay. like this requires a little bit of subtlety and it requires a bit of shading. How does it look animation-wise? Beautiful. Really, really, really beautiful. Like, they have, like, there's a very clear sense of, 
you know, inspiration from it. Like, you know, Element City looks like a mixture between, you know, Paris and Amsterdam and New York and the Bronx mm-hmm. and Brooklyn. Um, even how they kind of like set up like, you know, the apartment where um, Wade's mother lives, who, by the way, is voiced by Catherine O'Hara. You know, it looks like kind of like this kind of Frank Lloyd Wright kind of thing. You know, that kind of way. Yeah. It's very clear that they do have a... St- I mean, it's Pixar. You expect them to have a really strong visual sense and they definitely do have it. And even the idea of like, you know, the smart, the kind of the smartness of, you know, Ember's talent is glass blowing, is glass um, creation. Of course, that's, you know, born out of, you know, sand and fire. Like that's so smart. You know, that kind of awareness of it, I think is, is, is definitely there. So yeah, yeah, in terms of visuals, it's not lacking for it at all. Okay. So a little heavy handed, but Sounds like some interesting stuff going on. So what would you say stars-wise for Elemental? I mean, I'd go three, three and a half out of five. Like, I mean, it's, it, look, it's definitely not up there with Pixar's best work. Like, I mean, you know, you talk about WALL-E or you talk about mm. Inside Out or you talk about Up. I mean, those yeah. are the gold standards. This yeah. is minor Pixar, I would call it. You know, the kind okay. of way. it's not the best, but it's definitely worth a watch, I think. Yeah. Now, listen, you're first time on show, but I'm a stickler for this. You have to give me a definitive three or three and a half. Oh, we don't do halves in this show. <laughs> okay. Can, right. It has to be either three or three and a half. So which one are you opting for? I'll go for, I'm feeling generous today. So let's, let's call it three and a half. Okay. That is three and a half for Elemental, which is in cinemas, I should say, from this Friday, the 7th of July. I've been talking for the first time on this show to Brian Lloyd, movies editor with entertainment.ie. Brian, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You're so hot. Excuse me? No, I mean like you're smoking. No, I didn't mean it like that. Are you done yet? Yes, please. I'm waiting to talk to your boss. So make like a stream and flow somewhere else. Actually, Gail won't be in today. She's a huge airball fan and the Windbreakers are finally in the playoffs. Toot toot. Okay, well, I just came by because I left my passes for the game here last night. Passes? Like plural? A clip there from Elemental, which is in cinemas from this Friday. Now, I should say Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is out on Monday. But you see, I didn't have it in my calendar because it's not out this week. It's out next week. So, I'm sorry, we're going to review it next week, if that's okay with you. It's meant to be very good, so... That's the good news. And you heard me talking to Brian Lloyd there of entertainment.ie about Elemental. Up next, actor Rory Nolan chats about his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. Rory Nolan is one of Ireland's busiest actors who's been in movies, stage shows, and of course TV shows. For many, he's known for playing Russell Carroll Kelly in the various stage versions of Paul Howard's well-known novels. His latest theatre role is quite a feat in that he will be in that he will be playing both Captain Boyle in Juno in the Paycock and Seamus Shields in Shadow of a good man as part of Druid O'Casey, the renowned Druid Theatre Company staging of Sean O'Casey's Dublin trilogy, completed of course by the Plough and the Stars, all in one day by a company of 18 actors. And he is about to begin at the Galway Arts Festival, so I appreciate him taking some time out of his busy schedule. Rory, how are you? I'm very well, John. How are you? Very well. Now, listen, we had to ban Some Like It Hot 
and we had to ban the Shawshank Redemption for being picked too many times. And I think after you choosing this movie, we're going to have to ban this one because it is so popular, particularly with actors and comedians. So you're the last person in the slot for a while who's allowed to choose this movie. So tell our listeners what it is and why. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm honoured to have, have made it into the Big Lebowski circle. <laughs> the movie is uh, The Big Lebowski by the Coen Brothers Asking me to pick my favourite film is pretty tough, um, tough ask. But when I boiled it down, it, it always comes back to Big Lebowski. Yeah, every single time. It's just, it's just it, for me. It just has it all. You know, I'm I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. Anyway, I think they're just singular in their in their voice and their vision and in their comedy. And I just think they make the best films. But the Big Lebowski, maybe caught me at the right time you know f- formatively growing up or something i don't know what it was and i'll be totally honest with you when i first saw it um it, it took me a second view and i was like what the hell was that after i just saw it and this is in the late 90s or early 2000s when it came out um but then revisiting it and i watched it with my brother again after i'd seen it in the cinema and we just our jaws were dropping and we were kind of looking at each other the whole way through saying did you just hear that did you hear that <laughs> rewinding bits that we you know it's just it's it for me it's just the, the perfect film yeah and it is i don't we, regular listeners to this show won't need us to go into the plot because i think everyone any movie aficionado or movie lover loves the big lebowski i mean some people don't like it but it is endlessly quotable as well and i suppose aside from all the characters the person people love the most is the dude yeah. jeff bridges i mean as an actor are you in awe of that kind of laconic masterclass he gives yeah completely i mean it's it's one of the greatest uh kind of weirdly most underrated film performances i think you'll you'll ever see i mean he just inhabits it so perfectly you know this is this film is like it's it's like a greek odyssey about the ultimate slacker you know Mm. about how how a mistaken identity sends this guy and you know and and somebody peeing on his rug sends this guy (laughs) on this incredible you know odyssey journey um but Jeff Bridges in it is is just superb. Like he's 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 so he's just so on the money. You know what I mean? If you watch it, I think there's a, there's a kind of a, a rumor going around that if you watch it, he never actually finishes a sentence. And it's it's I I, I think it's fairly bang on. You know, just so yeah. much he, he rambles and he you know and he and he's just a guy getting by. And the thing about it is, is like it was made in the late nineties. I think maybe 97 or 98, which was a kind of a weird golden era for Hollywood movies. They were making great stuff. It was that kind of era when they were doing things like, I remember Fight Club and Sixth Sense mm. and all these kind of movies were coming out. But the thing about The Big Lebowski was, even though it was written and made so soon after the events, it really is a period piece and it captures the early 90s so perfectly. I mean, it's, it's, it's set with the... Um, around the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and George W. Mm. Bush going in and all that. And um, uh, and it, it just captures that moment of, of Americana, you know, that, that, that American history so, so perfectly, you know. I yeah. mean, it opens, it opens with, a, you know, with a tumbleweed and that amazing Sam Elliott voice. And <laughs> the first, you know, few shots is Jeff Bridges buying milk, 
with a check. He's paying for a carton of milk with a check, <laughs> but he's already drunk out of the carton because it's on his moustache. And then they use this this motif of, uh, you know, he, he's watching the television while he's at the, the checkout, as we all know, and he hears George Bush saying, this aggression will not stand, which was one of those famous quotes at the time. And of course, everything that comes up, everything he hears kind of gets regurgitated. And he does it so brilliantly. He makes it completely his own. I mean, it's, it's of course, there's so many brilliant um, film performances, but he's, he's, you just can't imagine anyone else do it. And of course, you know, he's supported so brilliantly by uh, John Goodman. Yeah. As, as Walter. I mean, they, they're kind of like, I'm, I, I don't want to say they're like Lauren and Hardy, but they're a modern duo, you know, that, that, yeah. I don't think we've seen a kind of, uh, a, a buddy film or a, or, you know, two actors playing off each other so perfectly, you know, mm. all the way through a film. So, yeah. you know, watching Bridges and watching John Goodman, like, just going at it. And, and you can imagine what it must have been like for the Coen brothers behind the camera, you know, capturing this stuff and bringing this uh, film to life. Because it's really, like, it's it, <laughs> they're just magnificent. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, the the... The point of this slot is to get people to rewatch movies when we hear other people talk about that. And I have a feeling now, I feel like going home and opening a white Russian and watching The Big Lebowski. So uh, m- mission accomplished. We didn't mention John Turturro's Jesus because oh, for yeah. many, he's on screen for 30 seconds, but he is just... Uh, a, a, a wonderful character. It's the, mm. maybe the greatest cameo ever, if you ask me. I don't know your thoughts on it, but I think you're dead right. Yeah, it's it's definitely up there. I mean, mm. like it, it, in in so many ways, it's so far fetched. And of course, the stuff that you know they say, which you can't really <laughs> no <laughs> really yes. repeat on hey, air. Hey, Zeus will do something to you. Let's just say, hey, Zeus hey, will do something to you, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that, and they have this <laughs> big, huge thing in the slow mo thing with the they've Hotel California in in uh, by the Gypsy Kings that version as he's bowling, and Totoro is absolutely amazing, and he he gives them this huge, big tirade of you know he's going to do this to them, he's going to do this to them, all in in a bowling match, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's just this amazing pause, and and Jeff Bridges' reply is only reply is well, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's used on one of our shows here on the station uh, as, oh, really? as part of a theme tune. There you go. Well, listen, thank you for that. The Big Lebowski is uh, unquestionably Rory Nolan's favorite movie. Listen, Rory, at the top there, I mentioned Druid O'Casey. This is a tall order to do two different parts in two different plays within one day. Is this the strangest acting experience you've encountered thus far? Um, I don't think it's the strangest because we've done a few of these cycles with Druid before where we did okay. four Shakespeare's in a row and we were all playing wow. different parts and we did three Tom Murphy plays and we were all playing different parts and all in one day. Um, it's it's certainly a marathon, you know, it's, yeah. it's a big load. So if it's, uh, I mean, when it comes to playing the characters, it's it's amazing how you can just compartmentalize when you're in a certain play and, you know, mm. get into um uh, the different characters that that actually isn't the hardest part it's the i suppose there's a huge amount of adrenaline that gets us through it but um it's great fun it's 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 they're epic plays you know mm. what i mean they're they're three of the greatest plays uh, in the irish repertoire and yeah 
you know, Casey's really, I don't think anyone was ever writing so close to the time about the events they're writing about. You know, it was only a few years mm-hmm. had elapsed. So he was, he was a, you know, a front row witness to everything that was going on. But the plays are like, you know, they, they deal with the formation of the modern state as we know it now. Um, yeah. And, and not just that, they're just chock full of, of brilliant, memorable characters, uh, hilarious scenes, tragic scenes. They just, and, and what's amazing about doing them as a trilogy is that, you know, Sean O'Casey, when he actually finished writing them, he said, I didn't realize that I'd actually written a trilogy. Uh, yeah. And he has, and when, when you, you, you we, we're presenting them chronologically, starting with The Play on the Stars, which is the uh, Easter Rising. Then you have The Shadow of a Gunman, which is the War of Independence. And then you have Juno and the Peacock, which is set um, during the, the Civil War. Um, so the three really are kind of interwoven together. Um, and it's almost like going out to see, it's, it's almost like sitting down and watching a big chunk of a box set or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a good way to think of it. Uh, yeah. And audiences come out in droves. I mean, we're, we're definitely sold out for the trilogy in Galway. Um, and I think maybe Dublin as well. I'm not sure. It, so people love going and experiencing these big, uh, profound, plays and and the experience can be quite profound not just for us on stage but you know for the journey that we all go through in, mm. the, in the theater so yeah. Um, yeah people love them and um yeah so we're, we're in the middle of getting them all ready for everyone coming in our first audience is on sunday actually here in galway and then um yeah off off we go with them and uh hopefully yeah. hopefully people come in and enjoy them as much as we're enjoying putting them together yeah, well, listen, may the theatre road rise to you. And then finally, uh, rarely an interview you've ever done doesn't mention you playing Ross O'Carroll Kelly on the stage. Have you been surprised by like how often you've done that, that the life that that's had for you as an actor? Because I presume, you know, it, it was a gig at the time, but it's it, it's been a big part of your working life. Yeah, it has really. I mean, when I think about it, the first one we did was 16 years ago in wow. in 2007, um, prophetically in, uh, titled The Last Days of the Celtic Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, no, you know, like it's really unusual to be playing a character for that length of time, you know, over how many years. Now, it's only four shows that we've done, but they've come mm. back. Yeah, um, but but to get you know the same character in 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 four shows is kind of remarkable. But you know, all all said with that, he's a he's a great character. People hate hate to love him and love to hate him. <laughs> yeah, um, and there's nothing like standing on stage and wherever we play the Gaiety or the Olympia with a thousand people. Uh, roar and laugh and back at you and uh, you know a huge amount of that i mean no it's it's really all paul howard you know he's such an excellent writer he's he's amazing at capturing the zeitgeist and, and i don't think i've met anyone who can write uh, a gag as well as him and it's not just the gags he, he writes brilliant stories for the characters so he's been he's been so generous you know with the character and letting me do what i i want to do with him on stage and you know He's. It's a joy to play, you know, and mm. um, and I'm I'm very happy to be associated with the character. Weirdly. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 that said, and and Paul Howard is a fine writer, and on this slot he chose Star Wars. You'll be pleased to hear. Oh, but yeah. give yourself give yourself some credit because before the stage show, we all had a view of what Ross O'Carroll Kelly sounded like. But it seems to me you have nailed his persona and particularly the accent perfectly because he is an adored, albeit occasionally loathed character. So, you know, you really did find him, it seems. 
Well, I was given great lines. I mean, the first yeah. the first line I ever said as Russell Carroll Kelly in front of an audience was, I suppose when I look back, I'd have to say that being really, really good looking is a gift I haven't coped all that well with. <laughs> and, and it kind of, and I remember, I just remember them all bursting out laughing. Of course, we'd been rehearsing it, so I wasn't used to the fact that people might laugh at, at the opening line. And from that moment on, through the next four plays, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think <laughs> maybe paying myself a backhanded compliment here, but I think the character sits well within me. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Well, listen, you were about to begin a mammoth task with Druid O'Casey. Thank you very much for taking the time. Rory Nolan, his favourite movie is The Big Lebowski. Thanks a lot, Rory. Cheers, John. Thanks for everything. You're lucky she didn't get shot, Mr. Lebowski. Oh, man. Must have been a joyride situation. They abandoned the vehicle once they hit the retaining wall. Oh, my briefcase, man. It's not here. Yeah, Shit. I saw that on the report. Sorry. Uh, you got to get in on the other side. Uh, the side view was found on the road by the car. You're lucky they left the uh, tape deck, though, in the Credence. Oh, Jesus. What's that smell, man? Uh, yeah, it's uh, probably a vagrant slept in the car. Or maybe just use it as a toilet and moved on. Hey, man. Are you going to find these guys? Or, you know, I mean, you got any promising uh, uh, leads or... Leads? Yeah, sure. I'll uh, just check with the boys down at the crime lab. They uh, got uh, four more detectives working on the case. They got us working in shifts. <laughs> <laughs> Leads. <laughs> a policeman laughing at Jeff Bridges when he's wondering are there any leads on his missing car case. The wonderful Big Lebowski. And my thanks to Rory Nolan who's about to begin in Druid O'Casey in the Galway Arts Festival and that's also going to move to the Abbey and indeed uh, the Lyric Theatre in Belfast. So do check out those respective websites to find out uh, if you can still get tickets. And there's even going to be dates in America. So for all of that information, go to www.druid.ie. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, what are we doing on the show next week? It'll come to me any second now. We are going to be talking to one of my favourite people, Mark Cousins, about his new Hitchcock documentary. I'm also going to be talking to Tom Moore from Cartoon Saloon about Puff and Rock. So all of that to come next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. You can get this show anytime you wish as a podcast on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm. It is indeed repeated on Sundays at 8pm because, you know, it's just so worthy of listening to again. So thank you for listening this week and I will talk to you all next week.